0: It's 8.30 on Friday morning, November the 2nd, 1917. Three years into the First World War. Thomas Henry leaves the house where he lives in Regent Square, not far from London's King's Cross. In those days, this part of Bloomsbury is a working class neighbourhood. The houses on the square are high tenement buildings, crowded with multiple occupants. It's not unusual to have families living in one or two rooms. The water supply is a shared tap in the street. But there are compensations. At the centre of the square is a garden, surrounded by railings. Henry enjoys having this little bit of green space on his doorstep. Though at this time of the year, the branches of the trees are almost all bare. Fallen leaves litter the ground. Henry crosses the road to walk along the pavement closest to the garden. It rained in the night, and the air has a damp, earthy smell. Henry's usual line of work is as a medical orderly at a psychiatric hospital. He's seen some sights. In fact, it all got a bit too much for him, so he's given it up for the time being, and he's now working as a packer for a jewellers on Caledonian Road. He'd better get a move on though, or he'll be late for work. But as he walks along the southern edge of the garden, something on the other side of the railings catches his eye. It's a bundle of something, wrapped in sacking. The bundle is on the ground, between two trees, a few feet from the gate. At this time of the day, the gate is usually locked. Henry doesn't have his key on him, so he climbs over the railings, losing his bowler hat in the process. The exertion leaves him winded. He's not a young man anymore. If he was, he'd be in a uniform on the Western Front but his curiosity has been aroused. He lays a hand on the bundle tentatively. The sacking is damp. The package itself is stiff and unyielding. The whole thing is tied up tightly with string. There's a faint butcher's shop smell that puts the image of a sheep's carcass into his head. But why would anyone abandon a valuable stock of meat in a quiet London square? Mixed in with his curiosity now is a sense of dread. He takes out his penknife and cuts the string, carefully opening the package at the top. There's another layer, a clean sheet of fine linen, covering whatever's inside. His heart is pounding as he peels away the sheet. The vague, meaty smell that he picked up earlier hits him with full force. For a moment, it's hard for him to make sense of what he's looking at. And then he realizes, this is something more horrific, more frightening than anything he's encountered on the asylum wards. This is a vision straight out of a madman's nightmare. He can see a woman's undergarment, a chemise. is heavily bloodstained. Inside the chemise, there's a human torso. Maybe it's his medical background, but Henry feels a sense of detachment as he processes the appalling sight that confronts him. The head has been removed. He can see that straight away. But as he pulls away the inner sheet, he realises that the victim's hands are also missing and both her legs have been cut off above the knees. He's struck by how little blood there is on the severed parts. Henry has the feeling that he's being watched. He looks around and sees a crowd has gathered on the other side of the railings, mostly women. One of them calls out to him, what is it? Henry is in shock, his words stilted. It's a girl's dead body. Some of the women in the crowd start to scream. One faints. Those with more presence of mind run off. He hopes to find a policeman. Now, Henry looks around the garden. He can barely acknowledge what he's looking for. But the rest of the body parts must be somewhere. His attention is caught by a second, smaller package on the ground a few paces away. This package is also wrapped in sacking, tied up with string. He opens it up to find the severed legs, bent tightly at the knees. A wave of dizziness comes over him. When he was still working in the asylum, he came across a few cases of shell shock, soldiers back from the war, traumatized by their experiences. To find the same horror here, in the square where he lives, Henry shakes his head, is too much. He puts the second lot of body parts with the first, As he does so, he notices a small square of brown paper placed on the torso. He must have missed it earlier when his attention was overwhelmed by more gruesome details. He now sees that there's something written on the paper in pencil. The letters are awkwardly formed, like they've been written by someone who is barely literate or not used to writing. He spells out the letters. The first word is B-L-O-D-I-E. Then comes B-E-L-G-I-M. Bloody Belgium. Henry has experience in deciphering the scrawl of mentally disturbed individuals. He sees it straight away. Bloody Belgium. At that moment, a police sergeant arrives on the scene. Thomas Henry feels relieved that the police are taking over now, but he knows that he will never erase what he has seen from his memory. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold, sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Even against the backdrop of war, with the population shaken by the constant fear of Zeppelin raids, this stands out as an exceptionally shocking crime. A headless torso, left in a London square for anyone to find. An unidentifiable female victim dressed in her undergarments. Naturally, the police are keen to apprehend the killer as soon as possible before public outrage turns to widespread panic. And before there is another killing, that is always the great unspoken fear. The investigation initially falls under the jurisdiction of E Division. Holborn District, led by Divisional Detective Inspector John Ashley. But the strange note left on the body suggests there may be a war angle to the crime. London at the time is full of refugees. Perhaps the victim was one of them. Or perhaps the murder was intended to stoke up fear amongst immigrants. Is there a sadistic killer on the loose, targeting Belgian victims? the decision is taken to bring in Scotland Yard. In particular, a Scotland Yard detective with a stellar success rate and a reputation for outstanding courage, Chief Detective Inspector Frederick Wensley. A modest man, despite his achievements, Winsley is widely respected in the force. Ashley is glad to have him on board. Born in Somerset in 1865, Wensley had wanted to be a detective ever since he was a young boy. He moved to London when he was 22, specifically to join the Met. One of his earliest memories on the job was of being thrown through a plate glass window while attempting to break up a drunken fight. A little later, he was one of hundreds of beat coppers drawn in to patrol the streets of Whitechapel during the so-called Jack the Ripper case. He tells of fixing strips of rubber to the soles of his police issue boots to silence his footsteps. Even though it's nearly 30 years ago, those horrific crimes and the fear they inspired are still fresh in his memory. He knows that the killer was never caught, but there's always the possibility that he might strike again. Until about a year ago, Wensley had spent his entire career in Whitechapel rising to the rank of chief detective inspector. Whitechapel, under his watch, was a uniquely challenging area of London to police. There was a high density of immigrants, many of whom did not speak English, and even if they did, they were reluctant to talk to the police. Crime was rife. From street gangs to professional burglars, Wensley had come up against them all, earning a grudging respect from those he'd put away. Wensley called Whitechapel the finest training ground imaginable for a young detective. The experience and specific knowledge he had built up in the area were indispensable. In the opinion of a leading prosecution barrister, it made him the greatest detective of all time. Though Wensley himself claims he has little in common with the great fictional detective Sherlock Holmes. It's true that they both like to smoke a pipe while working on a case. But for Wensley, being a detective isn't about making inspired leaps of deduction. It's about methodically gathering the evidence and piecing it together until the truth emerges. The truth is all that matters, he has a habit of saying. The single object is to get at the truth. In October 1916, it was finally time to move on from his Whitechapel patch, when the head of Scotland Yard CID, Chief Detective Inspector Alfred Ward, was killed in a Zeppelin raid. A vacancy came up for the top job in crime detection. Frederick Wensley was the man to fill it. Ward was an old friend of Wensley's. He felt his loss deeply, even though it meant his own advancement but the war had taken an even deeper personal toll on him. His eldest son, also called Frederick, a second lieutenant in the Lincolnshire Regiment, was killed in action in 1915. He was 23 years old. Death isn't something abstract for Chief Detective Inspector Wensley. He knows the grief and pain it causes firsthand. On Saturday, November the 3rd, 1917, Wensley heads to Bow Street Police Station where Inspector Ashley briefs him on the progress of the investigation so far. According to the medical examiner, the victim was killed no more than 48 hours before her body was found. The mutilation of the body showed some level of anatomical skill, suggesting either someone with medical knowledge or possibly a butcher. But given that the body was tied up in Butcher's sacking, Wensley thinks it's more likely that the murderer is a butcher. The sacking bears the brand mark Plata Cold Storage Argentina. Does this mean they're looking for someone who dealt in frozen Argentinian beef? The two detectives discuss the significance of the mysterious note left with the body. The poor handwriting and incorrect spelling suggest a low level of education, possibly a non-English speaker. It's another reason to suspect a butcher rather than a doctor. But at this stage, Wensley is keeping an open mind. The message could easily be a ploy designed to throw them off the scent. Wensley asks Ashley if he's made any progress in identifying the victim. The smile on his colleague's face gives his answer. A laundry mark, 11H, was sewn in red cotton in one corner of the sheet the torso had been wrapped in. Inquiries were made at all the local laundries. But the breakthrough came when Ashley published a photograph of the mark in the papers. A witness came forward, one Mrs. Thomas, the proprietor of a Danish laundry on Judd Street. She identified the mark as belonging to one of her customers, a French woman named Emelienne, or Millie, Girard. Mrs. Thomas was even able to provide the detectives with an address, 50 Munster Square, less than two miles from where the body was found. As it happens, Ashley was just about to head there when Wensley arrived. He asks the Scotland Yard detective if he would like to come along. Naturally, Inspector Wensley accepts the invitation. The detectives are let into Millie Gerard's apartment by her landlord. As the landlord lights the gas, Inspector Wensley takes in the tiny two-room apartment. He immediately looks for signs of a struggle, but everything seems to be in order. Then Wensley notices some dark stains on a rug. Blood. It's impossible to tell for sure, of course. Wensley has an uneasy feeling. The detectives learn from neighbors that Millie had been missing since October the 31st, two days ago. That night there had been a particularly bad Zeppelin raid. The neighbors say that it's not uncommon for her to go away for several days at a time. Where does she go? asks Wensley. Nobody seems to know. Because of this, no one had thought anything of her absence this time. A lady from two doors down puts forward the theory that she left London because she was afraid of the air raids, but there doesn't seem to be anything concrete to back this up. In fact, the same woman immediately contradicts herself. She tells the story of how Millie once cheered her up when she herself was afraid during a Zeppelin raid, saying, don't be scared. Your husband's going through much worse at the front than we are. Inspector Wensley starts to build up a picture of the missing woman. Aged about 30, she is described as short of stature and well-nourished, which he takes to mean overweight. The physical details the neighbors give correspond to the torso left in Regent Square. However, as the victim's head is still missing, The police cannot yet confirm their description of her abundant, blonde, early hair. As for Millie's character, she seems to have been sympathetic and well-liked. Most of her neighbours describe her as quiet, though apparently she didn't speak much English, which may have been the reason for that impression. Everyone agrees that she was a respectable woman. They say she always dressed well, and even owned some expensive pieces of jewellery. Wensley and Ashley exchange a significant glance. A woman called Adelaide Chester provides most of the information. She lives in another apartment in the same house and is a bit of a busybody. But busybodies are often useful to the police. Mrs. Chester tells them that she doesn't think Madame Girard was particularly happy. Sometimes, she says, it seemed as if she had been crying for hours. She was married to a Frenchman, a soldier on active service in France. She thought they might be separated, but wasn't sure. Once she'd met Millie in a grocer's shop and asked her how she was. I'm all right, she'd said, but I feel so unhappy. Inspector Wensley can't help feeling sorry for Millie Girard, separated from her husband and living alone in a strange land where she had trouble speaking the language. It must have been a lonely existence. His sympathy is aroused even more when he learns that she'd had two children, but they were both dead. It's also likely that she'd lost her home in France. Otherwise, why was she in London? But then Mrs. Chester reveals something that makes Wensley prick up his ears. She says that she occasionally saw the Frenchwoman in the company of a middle-aged man, also French. Millie had said he was a relative. Mrs. Chester pulls a face as if she doesn't quite believe it. She once walked past the two of them quarreling on the corner of Munster Square. Millie was speaking loudly in French and gesticulating angrily. Mrs. Chester could hear her high-pitched voice all the way down the street. But they were speaking French, so she couldn't say what the argument was about. Once again, Wensley and Ashley look at each other. All lowercase that's shopify.com slash special offer while they're inside the apartment the detectives take the opportunity to search for clues in a cupboard they discover more linen bearing the laundry mark 11h it doesn't prove that the dead woman is millie gerard but it does at least confirm a connection between the victim and the missing frenchwoman they also find a photograph of a middle-aged man on Madame Girard's mantelpiece. They take it with them as evidence. Significantly, they find no expensive jewelry in the apartment. And their final crucial discovery is an IOU note for 50 pounds, which is owed to Millie Girard by a man named Louis Voisin. The note provides the detectives with a possible motive for Millie's murder, money. Naturally, Inspector Wensley is keen to talk to Voisin. But in the meantime, he wants to gather as much evidence as possible. He advises Ashley's team to widen their inquiries, to include local shops and cafes, particularly those frequented by the French community. The aim is to draw up a list of all Millie's known associates. Yes, Voisin is a suspect, but it's too early to narrow down the investigation. No one has seen Millie since October the 31st. As they interview witnesses, they learn another interesting detail about the missing Frenchwoman. It seems that her hands had been badly burnt in an accident, leaving her with distinctive scars. This could explain where the hands had been removed from the body in the sack. It's another reason to believe that the victim is Millie Gerard. The two detectives follow a trail that leads to a small restaurant on Charlotte Street where Millie used to work. The manager says she left her job there to work for a man who lives next door in the basement apartment of 101 Charlotte Street. But she's no longer working there, or so he'd heard. What was the name of this man? Louis Voisin. Wensley shows the restaurant manager the photograph of the middle-aged man they had taken from Millie Girard's apartment. The manager nods, yes, that's him. Wensley asks him if he knows Voisin. Yes, he knows him well. He sometimes buys steak from him. Louis Voisin is a butcher. Winsley doesn't have enough evidence to arrest Voisin just yet, but he does want to question him about Millie Girard's disappearance. What exactly was the butcher's relationship with the missing woman? If he was just her employer, why did she have a photograph of him on her mantelpiece? That evening, Saturday, November the 3rd, he leads a team of officers to 101 Charlotte Street. The door is opened by a woman, who looks at the policeman in alarm. The woman is French and doesn't appear to speak much English. But Wensley has brought along a French-speaking sergeant to act as interpreter. The woman's name is Berthe Roche. She says that she lives here with Louis Voisin, though Voisin is not at home right now. Asked when she expects him back, she just shrugs her shoulders. Roche refuses to let them into the house without Voisin there. Wensley decides to wait outside, the butcher to return. At 3am, a man approaches the property. It's Louis Voicine. Despite door-stopping the Frenchman in the middle of the night, Wensley tries to put Voicine at his ease. They're just making some routine inquiries about Millie Gerard's disappearance. They've been talking to everyone who knows her, and he was the next on their list. It's nothing to worry about. They just need his help, reconstructing her movements before she went missing. Now? Voisin replies in disbelief. Wensley apologizes for the lateness of the hour, but is sure Monsieur Voisin will appreciate how urgent it is to find Millie. Voisin claims he doesn't know anything about it. He insists he's got no idea where she is. Perhaps he knows more than he realises, suggests Inspector Wensley smoothly. Why don't they go inside for a chat? Or if Voisin prefers, he can accompany them to Bow Street Station. Voisin's expression becomes wary. He says he'd rather go to the station. Wensley can't help thinking there's something inside the house that Voisin doesn't want them to see. Silhouetted in a window of the Charlotte Street house, Bertha Roche watches warily as Voisin leaves with the police. At Bow Street Police Station, early Sunday morning, Inspector Wensley faces Louis Voisin across a table. Aged about 50, the butcher is a short, thick-set man with a powerful frame and heavy jaw. He has the kind of bushy moustache typical of the period. His body language is aggressive his expression, determined. Like Bertrand Roche, Voisin doesn't speak English well. Wensley has the same French-speaking sergeant on hand to translate. The man's defences are up. At the same time, he's trying to give the impression that he has nothing on his conscience. He's free to go at any time, but chooses not to, perhaps because he thinks it will make him look guilty. At this stage, he's being interviewed as a witness, not a suspect. Voisin's story is that he's known Millie for about 18 months. It's true that for a time she worked for him as a housekeeper. She didn't live with him, but traveled between her rooms and Charlotte Street. He describes their relationship as friendly. Wensley waits in silence for him to elaborate. He is convinced there was something more than friendship between Voisin and Millie. Voisin remains tight lipped. Wensley asks him about the last time he saw Millie. That would have been October the 31st, Voisin recalls. She was with a friend, a French girl called Marguerite. They told me they were going back to France so Millie could visit her husband. According to Voisin, they were leaving that very day. The statement immediately arouses Inspector Wensley's suspicions. It isn't just that Voisin had earlier said that he had no idea where Millie was. The sudden trip abroad is a classic ploy used by murderers to cover an unexplained absence. Then, Voisin volunteers some information entirely unprompted. He says that the day he saw Millie and her friend, he had taken home a calf's head and butchered it in his own kitchen. Of course, as a butcher, he might be expected to cut up meat at home. But why bring up something that, on the face of it, has no relevance to the case? Wensley takes the decision to detain Voisin, pending further investigations. Voisin is searched and the key is found on his person. The butcher claims he doesn't know where it is for. Meanwhile, Inspector Ashley's men talk to Voisin's neighbors. A number of people report hearing an argument coming from Voisin's apartment on the night of October the 31st. Two raised voices were heard, both speaking French, both women. One particularly informative witness is Angélia Lupinz. She reports seeing Berta Roche at the water tap around 8.30 the following morning, Thursday, November the 1st. Lupins thought it was odd because Roche was not usually up so early. She remembers asking her why. According to Lupins, Roche replied, Monsieur Voisin has just killed a calf and is full of blood. I have been washing his underclothes. When Lupin's seemed shocked, Roche went on, Voisin landed a bad hit with the hatchet. The calf struggled. His shirt and jacket were full of blood. Lupin's also reveals that she spoke to Roche that very morning about Voisin's arrest, asking her if it was to do with the headless body found in Regent Square. Oh no, it's nothing to do with that matter. That woman is Belgian. When he hears all this, Inspector Wensley decides to bring Bertha Roche in for questioning too, while a thorough search is carried out at Voisin's apartment. At Bow Street, Voisin is still sticking to his story. The more he repeats it, the less Inspector Wensley believes him. There has to be a way to catch the butcher out. It's now that the detective has an inspired idea. He has to tread carefully, though. If he's seen as tricking Voisin into incriminating himself, a defense barrister will rip his case to shreds. Wensley turns to the interpreter. Ask him if he has any objection to writing the words, Bloody Belgium. Not at all, is Voisin's reply. A sheet of paper and a pencil are handed to him. Voisin screws up his face in concentration and writes the words. It's clearly a struggle for him. The handwriting is smaller than that on the note left with the body, but the spelling is the same. B l o d i e, b e l g i m. Wensley wants to be absolutely sure. Perhaps you're not feeling quite yourself, he suggests. Would you like to try again? Voisin writes the words out four more times. Each time the spelling is the same. The size of the handwriting varies, but on the last line, it's very close to the note they found on the headless body. He has Voisin taken back to the police cell. Things begin to move very quickly from here on. Wensley sees Inspector Ashley hurrying towards him. He can tell from his colleague's face that there's been another breakthrough. Ashley can barely contain his excitement. That key that they found on Voisin? It unlocked a cellar at 101 Charlotte Street. Wensley nods for his colleague to go on, but Ashley thinks it's better if Wensley goes straight there to see for himself. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. As Inspector Wensley enters Voisin's Charlotte Street apartment, he can immediately see why Voisin didn't want them to come in last night. There are bloodstains all over the kitchen walls and door. Presumably, This was why Voisin told them he had butchered a calf's head, though it's hard to imagine any experienced butcher making so much mess from straightforward butchering. Wensley also notices that a glass panel in the kitchen door is broken. The detective sergeant who searched the premises takes Wensley through his findings. In the stables at the back of the house, he found a blood-soaked rug. In fact, the rug is so bloody, it's still moist. He also found blood-stained butchers' overalls and a number of butchers' sacks bearing the brand bark Plata Cold Storage, Argentina, the same as the sacking the torso was wrapped in. In addition, he found a number of brown paper bags matching the paper the note was written on. In the kitchen fireplace, mixed in with the ashes, he found the head of a small hammer which someone had evidently tried to destroy. The broken handle was in the stove. He also found a large carving knife, spotted with blood, with a bloody fingerprint on the handle. Now, the sergeant takes Wensley into the cellar to show him his most shocking discovery. First, he shows the inspector a blood-soaked towel in which he found an earring. Next, a man's shirt, wet through with water, but clearly blood-stained. A woman's dressing gown is also dripping wet and stained with blood. It looks very like someone has tried to wash the blood out of these two items of clothing. Now the sergeant takes Wensley over to a barrel standing in one corner. Inside the barrel is a smaller cask filled with sawdust. In amongst the sawdust are two severed hands and the head of a woman with thick, curly blonde hair. An earring matching the one found in the bloody towel is still in one ear. There's no doubt in Wensley's mind that these remains belong to Millie Gerard, And it's clear to Wensley's experienced eye how she died. As he will later write in his memoirs, she had been struck about the head and face several times with a blunt weapon and there were bruises on her right hand that indicated how she had attempted to defend herself. On his return to Bow Street, Wensley charges Voisin and Roche with the murder of Millie Gerard. Roche immediately turns on Voisin, screaming at him in French and accusing him of betrayal. Voisin shrugs his shoulders. It is unfortunate, he says. Tests confirm that the blood in Voisin's kitchen is human. However, forensic science at the time is not capable of identifying it as conclusively belonging to Millie Girard. The unenviable task of identifying the head falls to the manager of the restaurant where Millie used to work. Yes, he confirms, it's her. He has also shown the hands and recognizes some distinctive scars on them. The eminent Home Office pathologist, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, is called in to examine the remains from Voisin's cellar. Judging from the wounds Millie sustained, he concludes she must have struggled hard for her life. The pathologist helps Wensley reconstruct what may have happened. First, there's the evidence of the earring in the bloody towel. From that, it seems that the towel was wrapped around her head to stifle her screams she was bludgeoned with her hammer. After she fell unconscious, she was left to bleed to death. Sir Bernard notes that Millie's skull was struck by a multitude of relatively light blows with a smaller number of heavy ones. Inspector Wensley wonders if this means that she was first hit by Roche and then finished off by Voisin. Sir Bernard agrees, possible. Wensley's theory of what happened is as follows. He believes that Millie Girard was more than just Voisin's former housekeeper. She was his mistress. On the night of October the 31st, the alarm sounds for a zeppelin raid. Millie is normally calm during raids, but this one feels worse than most. She leaves her home to take shelter in the nearest underground station. Eventually, the all clear is announced. But Millie is still anxious. Instead of going home, she goes to her lover's house on Charlotte Street. She knows that Voisin has a basement apartment and thinks she will be safer there if there's another air raid. To her surprise, she is let in by another woman. Wensley speculates that Voisin has already gone to bed. The two women confront each other. Possibly neither knew about the other's existence. There's a screaming row. Roche grabs the nearest weapon that comes to hand, a hammer, and strikes Millie on the head. Voisin rushes in. Perhaps he is the one who puts the towel around Millie's head to quieten her down, while Roche continues to rain down blows on her head. Eventually, Voisin takes the hammer off her and finishes the job. Wensley then imagines the two murderers sitting up all night in the same room as Millie's corpse as they discuss what to do next. Given Voisin's occupation, it falls to him to dismember the body. With both Voisin and Roche refusing to confess, there is no way of knowing for sure if this is what happened. But for Wensley, it's a reasonable working hypothesis. Over the following days, more loose ends are tied up. First, the police managed to track down Millie's friend, Marguerite. Poissin had said the two women went to France together. It turns out that Marguerite went on her own, leaving Millie in London. Next, Millie's husband arrives in London and identifies certain items of jewelry found in the butcher's apartment as belonging to his wife. As well as the earrings that Millie was wearing, he recognizes two gold watches and a number of diamond rings. Wensley also discovers that Voisin visited Millie's rooms on the day after the murder. He told the landlord that Millie had gone away and had asked him to feed her cat. Voisin then mentioned that she was expecting a delivery of potatoes, and would the landlord mind putting it in her apartment when it arrives? At first, this exchange confuses Wensley. But years of dealing with criminals has given him an insight into the way their minds work. Could it be possible that Voisin was intending to send Millie's head to her apartment, disguised as a sack of potatoes, so that it would look like she was killed there? To back up this story, Wensley believes that Voisin smeared some blood on the carpet. If he's right, there are a number of serious flaws in Voisin's plan. For one thing, the landlord would be able to testify to his conversation with Voisin, and it would be clear that the head had been delivered from somewhere else. But then, it doesn't strike Wensley that Louis Voisin was what you would call a criminal mastermind. This is a man who acts on impulse, without thinking things through. In other words, someone who responds to the first hare-brained idea that comes into his head. When Voisin finally does decide to talk, nothing he says casts any light on what really happened to Millie Gerard. He continues to maintain his innocence. Yes, he admits, he did go to Millie Gerard's apartment on the morning of Thursday, November the 1st. According to his statement, when I arrived, the door was closed but not locked. The floor and carpet were full of blood. The head and hands were wrapped up in a flannel jacket, which is at my place now. The rest of the body was not there. So what does Voisin do? He cleans up the blood and takes the head and hands back to his own apartment. His reason for doing this? Because he thought it was a trap. When challenged that none of this makes any sense, Voisin answers, why should I kill her? I didn't want any money, owe her any money. But Wensley knows this isn't true. He has already found the IOU note for £50, signed by Voisin. One thing about Voisin does impress Inspector Wensley. The Frenchman insists that Bertha Roche had nothing to do with whatever happened to Milly Gerard. She is not concerned in this crime at all, he says at one point. It's a touching display of loyalty. But perhaps, if he hadn't been unfaithful in the first place, It might never have come to this. What is remarkable about this case is how quickly it was solved. An unidentified headless torso was found on the morning of Friday, November the 2nd. On Monday, November the 5th, Voisin and Roche were formally charged with the murder of Millie Girard. In Inspector Wensley's view, it is the speed of the police's actions that ensured their success. Wasin simply didn't have time to dispose of Mili's head and hands. At the trial, as Inspector Wensley had feared, the defense barrister tries to have Wasin's handwriting samples ruled inadmissible. However, the judge decides that they were obtained legally. He points out that it could have helped Wasin's case if his handwriting had turned out to be markedly different from the note. Even without the handwriting. The evidence against Voisin is overwhelming. The jury wastes no time in finding him guilty. As for Berta Roche, the direct evidence against her is thought to be less conclusive. The judge directs the jury to acquit her on the charge of murder. Even Louis Voisin gives evidence in her favor, again insisting that she was not involved. She is found guilty of the lesser charge of accessory after the fact. Unusually, the judge pronounces Voisin's death sentence in French. He is hanged on March the second, nineteen eighteen. Roche is sentenced to seven years hard labor. Before her sentence is completed, she suffers a mental breakdown and is transferred to an asylum, where she later dies. Some have speculated that, despite Voisin's protestations, Berta Roche may not have been entirely innocent of Millie Girard's murder after all. There was plenty of evidence that Voisin was the one who cut up and disposed of Millie's body, but as for who actually killed her, it's impossible to say. Voisin's insistence that she was innocent may have been prompted by guilt over his infidelity, the possible trigger that caused Roche to kill Millie. If this theory is correct, an innocent man was hanged as Voisin was the accessory after the fact, and Roche the murderer. Perhaps it was the unbearable guilt caused by her responsibility for this second death, the death of her lover, that broke a fragile mind. Whatever her role in the events surrounding Millie Girard's death, it was an experience from which she never recovered. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, a young woman's dedication to her job costs her her life. When New Zealander Kathy Marlow works overtime one weekend in 2007, she encounters a brutal killer in the office. Police discover signs of a violent struggle with a trail of blood leading to Kathy's body. A major homicide investigation is underway. To reconstruct what happened, Scotland Yard detectives use all the techniques of modern forensics, including DNA, blood splatter analysis, and CCTV evidence. They follow a twisting trail of clues to track down their suspect. But can they unravel his web of lies to prove beyond doubt that he really is Kathy's killer? Sollen Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me. John Hopkins. Supervising Editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound Supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix Master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.